Hey there, everybody. Bob Beatty Barr here, and welcome to episode six of the My Friends Are Amazing podcast. Just a friendly reminder that you can find episodes of this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. I actually submitted the podcast to Spotify earlier this week, so we'll see if they pick me up. Anywho, just give a search for My Friends Are Amazing on any of the major podcast networks, and please, please, please give me a subscribe. In podcast news this week, we are inching ever closer to that 500 listen mark for the podcast, and I'm excited to blow right past it this week and just shoot on toward that 1,000 listens. Pretty sure we're going to be able to do this before the end of the year, uh, as long as I can do a podcast every week through the Christmas holiday. Uh, as you know, we skipped a week last week for the Thanksgiving holiday. Funny thing was, I actually recorded this episode uh, before the holiday break even came close. So I uh, actually recorded it right after we recorded Erica's podcast that night. So um, I have another great news. We have two sponsors this week. So we've picked up a new sponsor. So today the broadcast is brought to you by Social Imposter, Reputation Management for Social Networking Profiles, which is our standard sponsor. And we have a new sponsor that we're welcoming today, The Bob and Kevin Show. It's a weekly YouTube uh, show that goes live to help us tech nerds start the week. But first, let's do the Social Imposter read. Social Imposter is a customized service utilizing proprietary technology that finds and mitigates removal of fake social network pages on behalf of high-profile brands, actors, athletes, models, musicians, politicians, military officers, business people, members of the clergy, and their management teams. Basically, if you have a social media presence and uh, impersonators are a concern of yours, could get your listeners and or you know viewers into uh, financial trouble or just basically someone dragging you down by pretending to be you, Social Imposter is the team that you need. Now we have a new read for The Bob and Kevin Show. The Bob and Kevin Show streams live on YouTube every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Eastern Time, which means 7 a.m. my time, which is a little bit early, but you can always catch it on the on the on-demand stream as well. But basically, Bob and Kevin will help you kick off each week covering various tech topics, featured quizzes, and other special segments. Be sure to check them out on the YouTube and check out uh, the BeattyBar.com site after you listen today, and I will have a link for the live broadcast. It will be coming Monday. So, my guest this week on the podcast is Chris Lowe. Chris Lowe grew up in the middle-class suburbs of Northwest Chicago, product of a loving interracial couple. He was fortunate enough to attend a private Lutheran grade school and a college prep Jesuit high school. He graduated with a degree in architecture from the University of Illinois and married his college sweetheart, Jill shortly thereafter. The couple focused on their careers for the next decade, moving five times and living in three different states. Deciding to settle down to start a family, the couple moved to Batavia, which is where we're both from, in 2002, and Chris started his own consulting business. Their first child, Quentin, was born in 2005, and their daughter, Addison, followed shortly thereafter. Chris decided to close his business and focus on his family, becoming a stay-at-home father. Organizing playdates and volunteering at school led to involvement in the PTO and other community organizations. Following his passion for family, community, and politics, he committed himself to serving his community and was elected to a seat on the Batavius Public Schools Board of Education in 2015. Today, he spends most of his time running his household, chauffeuring the kids to practices and games, and volunteering. When life allows, he enjoys reading, writing, and playing board games with friends and family. This podcast with Chris, as I stated earlier, was actually recorded with both of us in the same room. So it's the first time I've done that. And I used my new toy, the H2N Zoom recorder. So anyway, I hope you like it. And let's meet Chris. 
what would you like to know? Where where do you want me to start? Do you want me to start at the beginning in Batavia? Do you want me to start at the beginning of my adulthood? Do you want me to start as a child? Ooh, let's um let's start a little bit closer to the present. We'll we'll go back to child. Ah, now rephrase that. Start at the beginning. It's a good place to start. Um. Okay. I am forty five years old, and I am the product of an interracial marriage. Um, my mom is white. My dad is black. Um, that very much colored my childhood and led to the person that I am today. Um, I grew up in a town called Wheeling in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. Very much a suburbanite. Um, however, I grew up probably middle to lower middle class neighborhood, um, but was very fortunate to go to private schools that offered the best education possible. Um, I went to nine years of Lutheran school, four years of Catholic school. I've read the Bible from cover to cover on many occasions. And would um, you consider yourself a religious person? No. Okay. Um, there was a time that I probably would have, but I it is not something that is in my life now. So I'm probably going to interrupt a lot to ask questions about some of the stuff because uh, I'm actually learning a little bit about Chris through this process as well. Part of the reason why I'm doing this whole thing. I have these great friends, but I don't know everything about them. So, all right. So growing up in the 70s, suburban Midwest, mm-hmm. uh, biracial couple, was that a progressive thing that was cool in your neighborhood or was that something that was hard for your parents? Um, honestly, as a child, I was probably too selfish to recognize any battles that they were going through. And have you talked to them about that since? Um, well, I found out a few years ago that my parents didn't get married until after I went to college. Well, that's very European and very progressive. So, yeah, from there, and my mom was very much a hippie. Um... My dad was my dad, uh, or is my dad. Um, he is a Motown, cool, into music, likes to sing and dance and be the life of the party kind of guy. Um, so, yeah, I would say a little progressive. I'm not sure about the struggles they went through personally. Um, I know that I was always different Um amongst the group of people that I was always around, whether I was around my dad's side of the family where I was the lightest skinned person around, or if I was on my, around my mom's side of the family where I was the darkest skinned person around, or if it was just in suburban Chicago life where I was probably one of the darker people around. So, all right, so how was it for you then if you weren't really aware of your parents' struggles, so growing up as a biracial child in suburban Chicago. How was that? Um, I probably was in college before I realized that everybody didn't go through this. So I always viewed any type of difficulties that I ran into because of race as just something that people go through. But you did run into troubles. Absolutely. Yeah, I probably... It started when I started riding the bus to school. So kindergarten, 
because I lived in Wheeling and I went to grade school in Glenview and the bus ride was anywhere between an hour to an hour and a half every day, oh. each way. Now, was that private school? Or was that, that was private school. Okay. So that's why the bus was so long? Or? Yeah, the bus pretty much had to pick up every kid from Glenview through Northbrook and Arlington Heights all the way out to Wheeling and Buffalo Grove. So how big was this school? There was 100 kids from kindergarten through eighth grade, roughly. So small. So you pretty much knew every kid in the school. Um, maybe you would, if you were in eighth grade, you might not know some of the kindergartners or first graders. But you probably knew their families if they are long with the community. You know, if they'd been in the community for a while, you probably were well aware of the family if you didn't know the individual. But it was very much a small, very close-knit group. So were you the only non-white kid at this 100-person school? No, there were probably anywhere between half a dozen and a dozen at any given time. Um, there was one other black person in my class. She, so I had a graduating class of 10 Whew. in eighth grade. So we knew each other quite well. So of the 10 of us, two of us were black. Um, and we are still friends to this day. Actually, I'm friend, I'm Facebook friends with almost everybody I went to, that was in my class in grade school. So here's a weird question since we're getting to that certain age in life. All the kids you graduated with still alive? As far as I know, for grade school, yes, for my grade. Um, so in that I, grade school graduating class. Yeah, so that so of those 10 people, as far as I know, all 10 of them are still alive. There are a few that were in and out of our class from kindergarten through eighth who I'm uncertain of that I'm... I think may have passed, but if you ask me about high school, it's a much different story. So you go from a graduating, uh, a K through eight graduating class of 10, and then where do you go to be a freshman? I went to Loyola Academy, which is up in Wilmette, Illinois, very much North Shore, wealthy, um, affluent these kids are going places type of school. What was the commute from your place to Wilmette? It was a about five minutes longer than it was to Glenview. Okay. So, so still it, was, it was a little, little bit further. Um, however, there wasn't necessarily, the, the closest bus would have been about a mile and a half from my house, so I never took the bus. Did you get driven? Um, my dad worked about a mile from the school. So he would drop me off in the morning, and then usually I would stay after school for whatever sport was in session at the time, and then I would walk over to his restaurant when he got off of work. Either he would have somebody drive me home, or when he got off work, he would take me home. So how big was that graduating class from high school? Um, I started with a class of 400, and I think 330 of us graduated, roughly. However, interesting story, while I was in high school... Um, my dad's schedule changed and he wasn't able to be there to drive me home from sports. So I had the choice of either finding my own ride or not doing sports. So I started riding my bike to school. So I rode my bike 15 miles to school. Holy shit. Had gym first period, would shower, went to school all day, had football practice, and then rode my bike 15 miles home. 
So for a good part of the year, well, actually football practice time of year, that was in the dark. Um, it Usually I would be, be home pretty close to dark. So how long did it take you to cover the 15 miles on bike? It was ironically, it was not much longer than driving. I mean, it probably in rush hour traffic took an hour to drive and it took roughly hour, hour 10 to ride my bike. So in hindsight, would you say that that was a safe bike route? No. Okay. No, there, there was part of it that was two lane road where I was riding with, there's no shoulder. Um, I actually did get ridden off the road once and took a little bit of a spill and actually this big bearded biker Harley looked scared the bejesus out of me type of guy got up and actually escorted me over to a local house that made sure that I was okay and got me back on my bike but he wasn't the one who caused the no he wasn't the one that caused it he was just a good Samaritan that was going by so but it sticks in my memory because I remember going over the handlebars and uh yeah so you do that every day? I Well, during football season, yeah. And I did that for, I think, just my sophomore year. Because by my junior year, I had friends who drove and got a ride. So I just did that my sophomore year. Still, that's, a, that's I was, one of those pivotal moments. <laughs> I was in good shape, and it taught me a lot about dedication and grit and that sort of thing. So how did that impact, I mean, I guess it was only an hour, but still, I mean, that's an hour after football practice, you know, how did that impact studies? I, that? I, I mean, I had been, that commute has been part of my life since I was in kindergarten. I'd been going an extra hour to and from school my entire life, so it was just something that I did. And now that I see my kids doing these things when they're really busy, I, I get it. I see how they can thrive under that environment. So let's go back to, and I'm not going to harp on this, but I know it's part of your, you know, your journey. So the biracial aspect. So you move from that small school to the bigger school, less of an impact, more of an impact status quo. Um, I think I actually started learning more about what it was to, I want to say be black. Um, this is kind of one of those weird identity things in that I'm biracial, yes, but most of society views me as black. And I had to come to terms with that identity. Um, and in high school was where I learned to embrace that identity. And it is where I started becoming somebody who wanted to help lead the way to a better tomorrow. Um, I actually started the black youth group when I was in high school um, because there were probably a dozen or two of us in the high school. We came from anywhere from all areas of Chicago to Evanston to the suburbs we knew we shared a common bond, but we didn't necessarily have something that tied us together. Um, so I actually helped form a group so that we could sit down and talk about the issues that we went through and bond and um, share more of African-American history with those who don't know about it. Um, 
And that was when I realized, you know, that what we taught in school isn't necessarily what happened. Um, we have a tendency to whitewash things. But you said that you don't want to harp on it. Um, I think one of the problems that we have in our society is that we are afraid to talk about it. And I think we need to talk about it. I think people need to listen to it. And unless we understand where each other's coming from, we can't expect to go forward. So I welcome the conversation. I actually welcome um, the questions. I would rather have people ask me questions than formulate an opinion that may be grossly untrue. Right. So fast forward to... I don't know, just a few weeks ago, probably a couple months ago, uh, Chris actually posted on his Facebook, basically, hey, I'm willing to be that black friend of yours to help you understand what's going on in the world around you. And if you have questions, you know, feel free to ask. And, you know, there's no nothing that's taboo. If, you know, I'm, I want to set this record straight. I want to, you know, write any misconceptions or just educate in general. So... How did that post go over? I think it went over really well. I a lot of people liked it. I didn't get as many questions as I would hope, but some people did ask questions, um, both on the page and privately. Uh, so that's a good first step. Um, you know, I think the key is to keep the conversation conversation going. Um, I recently posted. Something by Tahanisi Coates, who is a African American writer and activist, um, in reference to the N word, and a lot of people are makes very, a lot of people uncomfortable. Um, I tend to be a fan of language, so I don't like the idea of banning words, and I think every word has its place. I think. Um, you can tell a lot by a word and its usage and whatnot. But the purpose, the listening to this speech by Tahanisi um, allowed me to get a perspective that I, I didn't have myself. And that perspective is each group has their own words that they use amongst each other that they would probably be upset or offended by if somebody else used it for them. Um, the example that he used is that when his wife is hanging out with his with her girlfriends, sometimes they call each other bitches. And while that's perfectly fine for them, he would never go into that group and start throwing that word around. Right. And it makes perfect sense and nobody questions it. So it's not so much about cultural in in this specific instance. Not so much about cultural appropriation, it's just appropriate group ownership. Right. I mean, and so there are so many cases where that is that is true. You know, a bunch of guys are hanging out, you know, they might call each other an asshole. Right. And it's not a big deal, but if you get caught off on the road or if you're in a bar and somebody calls you an asshole, you're going to get upset about it. Right. And nobody questions the usage of that word in both those situations so the point that he was making is why are we even asking this question of why is it appropriate if black people use it in black music if they use it amongst each other but then it's not okay for a white person to use it we shouldn't even be asking that question because we have that word we have those words 
in all cultures, in all different groups, and we don't question it. It's just part of the way we use words. And so what we really should be asking is, all right, well, why does this bother us that they can use it and we can't? And I'm using the collective they and we, and that's part of being biracial and being confused <laughs> is I fall on both sides of that coin because, you know, I've got the white side of me that, all right, I understand why it's inappropriate for a white person to use that word at all. Um, but I also understand why black people would want to use that word amongst each other. I've used that word with my friends. I had a group of friends in college where that word was used liberally and it was fine. It was in context and everybody knew what it meant amongst us. So, you know, it's interesting how we sometimes get caught up in an idea when we don't really even understand the premise of the question we're asking, if that makes sense. Yeah, I pretty much shy away from it in general just because uh, you have no idea. Like, first of all, I don't think personally I've ever had, I don't know, like cause isn't the right word, call, like it just doesn't come up in my vernacular. Like, Right, I mean, like, and, and I think if, if it's in your vocabulary, you have to ask yourself, why is it in your vocabulary? And sometimes there's a good reason it's in your vocabulary, and sometimes there's not a good reason it's in your vocabulary. Um, and kind of have to deal with it from there because it could be in your vocabulary because it's in a lot of the music you like. And you identify with the music because you're rebellious regardless of your color, and you just want to appropriate that music, but you know there's a maturity that comes with it, and we have to learn... We can't necessarily, we don't necessarily have, I don't want to say the right, but we shouldn't appropriate, right. appropriate everything that we want simply because we want it. Well, there's lots of words in Taylor Swift songs that I don't use as part of my regular vernacular. Exactly. So. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, I think it's good that everybody has an expansive vocabulary and knows how to use it. My kids get angry when I say AF at the end of things because I'm apparently appropriating their yes. abbreviation culture. I have no idea. But yeah, so that's a very interesting, very, uh, I, I don't think it's dicey, which is weird. I think it's, I think it's very cut and dry. Well, I mean, like if I started dropping that in conversation with you, you'd be like, um, mm, uh, what are you doing? <laughs> but going back to the conversation about having open dialogues about race. I've actually had people honestly ask me, hey, I love the music. If I'm singing along with the song, can I throw that in? And the reality is, is yeah, you can throw it in if you want to, but if you're not in the right crowd, it can cause you a whole lot of difficulty. And I think there's a lot of crowds where it would cause difficulty. But I, I think that that's the case with all language. You know, There are lots of words that you can say... In, in the wrong situation and it's going to get you in trouble and you have to be smart about it. And the N word is no different. If nothing else, it is probably more perilous than any other word in our language at this point. Um, so if you want to use it, go ahead, use it at your own risk, but you've been warned. You, you <laughs> there know. you go. Yeah. You've been warned as an adult human being, basically. Yeah. I mean, appropriate place, appropriate time. And if there actually is no appropriate place or appropriate time, then, hey, maybe you just omit it from your vocabulary. There are plenty of words out there. I'm sure you can come up with a different one. 
If you, yeah. if you if you need to describe something in that situation, something tells me that's not the only word you can use. Well, that is an interesting statement. Um, we always have choices. We do always have choices. I'm very interested in what would be some of the swap outs at that point. I guess it depends on what the point you're trying to get across. <laughs> right, I know. I God. mean, if, if you're talking about my, you know, my brother, my man. There you go. So my buddy, my amigo. Right. Okay, so there's your swaps. Yeah, you know, there are plenty of other words that you can use, or this jerk, you know. Right. So for all you kids listening, there are alternate words. Choose them wisely. Fair enough. All right, so let's go back to high school. So football, yes. And track. And track. Those were my two sports. I was also in, it wasn't debate, it was... Please say it was the Constitution thing. It was Toastmasters, actually. Oh, wow. You guys did Toastmasters at school? We did Toastmasters at school. My dad will love that you just mentioned Toastmasters. And, and yeah, learning to give speeches and talk in front of people, which has always made me uncomfortable, but I always like pushing the envelope on certain, you know, on my comfort level. Right. And doing things that... that are outside of my comfort zone, whether it's trying food, going places, you know. Being uncomfortable, I think, is uh, is paramount to growth. Absolutely. And I know I didn't invent that idea, but I do totally believe it. Yeah, I, I, I think that we should constantly be trying to improve ourselves. And you do a fair amount of public speaking with your community role. Um. Probably more than I ever have, um, certainly. So you didn't do a lot of public speaking, or I guess public would, but meeting speaking, like speaking in front of small groups, large groups? Um, I've, I've, done it, I've done in front of, so one of my past lives, um, I'm a recovering architect, um, and I worked mostly on municipal and public education buildings. So I have spoke spoken right. in front of community planning and you know Alderman City Council meetings. I've done that before. Um, I actually started speaking and playing music in front of crowds when I was in grade school. When we had to read playing music, I used to play. I used to play trumpet. Nice. So I played trumpet fourth through eighth grade, and often we would have to play for church service. And so we would also have to read Bible verses. So I had to get in front of the entire congregation, which was probably several hundred people, and either perform music or plays, different pageants. And this was all pre-Toastmasters. This oh, yeah. Was this, right? would, this would have been grade school. So okay. we were put in that uncomfortable position from a very young age. And then the education that I received at Loyola reinforced that. And they very much drive to make... Community leaders. So, did you dig the Toastmasters experience? Yes, I mean, I have always enjoyed. What's the word that I'm looking for? Solving problems, and part of solving problems on a larger basis is being able to express your ideas to large groups of people, and so. That has been one of my goals is to be able to convince people and talk to people and 
have a conversation with people in large groups in order to convey an idea and pursue a common goal. So, and this is actually going to meander all over the place at this point because yeah, we're we're free. There's no organization here. here. Um. So when did you start writing? Because as people who may or may not know listening, Chris does a fair amount of writing, and he's actually really good at it. That is probably something I've always enjoyed writing, although I viewed it as a chore in high school, but I had a really amazing teacher in high school, Mr. Kuczynski, who pushed us to, in our ideas and our writing and our evaluation of other writing and critiquing other writing. Um, I think that's where the foundation of my writing began, but I don't really think that I wrote for any type of public consumption before social media. So when you write now for social media, do you follow any kind of formula or do you just totally riff from the heart? Um, I am, for the most part, I try to keep things topical is how I've, done things on social media where I will stumble across a story and I'll have an opinion on it. So I will initially post it looking for feedback from other people. And then once people start um, contributing with their own ideas, then I will enter with my own. Yeah. Um, Some of your responses are actually like epically more monumental than the original post itself. So, and I, and I think that's kind of my goal is to engage people with the conversation and let them start the conversation. And once they're engaged, I find that they're more willing to keep that conversation going as opposed to if I post something that has my opinion attached to it at the beginning if, if their opinion differs from mine, I find that they're much less likely to engage. Really? So instead, give them the opportunity to engage first because people love to be listened to. And I think it's important that we listen to them. Yeah. You know, because that's how the whole empathy, understanding... I just didn't thing. know you were doing the whole fishing thing with some of those starting posts. Perhaps. <laughs> All right, so this leads to a very great next question. So when was Cal, when was Controversial Cal born? So immediately after, so I started on, uh, what was before Facebook? Uh, MySpace? Yes, but I really did, I, I just used that to track friends and whatnot. I didn't really get into MySpace, but then once Facebook got on, um, and there's just all this information that's out there and it was really the first time where you can get so many different viewpoints in one location from people that you have some type of relationship with and where you may have thought your ideas were originally your own and only your own and that you are kind of isolated on an island, you find out that there are many other people who share your concerns. Yep. Um, so I started voicing my opinion on Facebook. Um, but what I quickly discovered is there are lots of friends and family that I have that have no desire to engage in that type of discussion. So I either had the option of having them not being linked to me any longer on Facebook or taking those discussions elsewhere. 
So who has more friends, Chris Lowe or Controversial Cal? Chris Lowe by far. Okay. So Cal's kind of under the radar? Um, it's not so much that it's under the radar. I welcome anybody who is interested in having constructive dialogue to go there, whether they agree with me or not. Um, matter of fact, there are people who contribute on Controversial Cal who I've never met in person who disagrees with me on pretty much everything that I do, who I would consider a friend. Right. So they hang in there for the dialogue. And they're willing to have the dialogue. And there have been opportunities where we both have been willing to admit that we've learned and grown because of the conversation that we've had. So my life is richer because of this stranger from Iowa who... You know, is and how vastly did that stranger different. from Iowa find? Cal? I have absolutely no idea. That's I'm crazy. guessing that like a friend of a friend, um, and a repost or whatever. Yeah, I, I discovered that the world is much smaller than we think. For example, before we started this, when we discovered that my roommate from college may actually be friends with the person who you interviewed earlier today. I guarantee they that she probably knows of him because Bellingham's not giant. Yeah, and he's been there for a while, so. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> so yes, it is a very small world and you throw social media on top of that and it gets even immensely smaller. Sometimes dangerously so. I mean, I, I, I think that we can be prone to creating our own echo chamber. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that's where getting outside of your comfort zone. And that's why I'm really appreciative for Controversial Cal, because I don't want people agreeing with me all the time. I want to be challenged. I am not 100% confident that my ideas that I have today are on the right path. You know, and the only way that I can know that is if other people challenge them. Um, I hope that they are. I think that the path that I'm on now versus the path that I was on 10 years ago is better, you know, and I hope that I'm going to be better tomorrow than I am today. So just from progressively getting better or was there a different path 10 years ago that is worth delving into here? <laughs> oh, no. I mean, I, I arbitrarily picked 10 years. Okay. Ago. So, so you've kind of always been on the same trajectory. Yeah. Um, I've always been a driven person who wants to make things better, if that makes sense. But my efforts to make things better when I was in college are vastly different than my methods today. You know, whereas then I was much more likely to say my way or the highway and be inflexible. Now I'm much more likely to take a breath, listen, hear what other people have to say and move forward going, all right, how can we better understand each other rather than, you know, this person is against me. Right. And in today's society, I think we need a whole lot more of people who are willing to go, all right, where's the middle ground? Where can we meet? Right. It's not always my way or the highway because you might know something different that I need to learn. Or your concerns might be different than mine. And I, you know, what I'm trying to do may be causing an effect on you that I'm completely unaware of. And unless you make me aware of it, I don't realize that I'm unintentionally harming you. So that's probably a good segue because we've talked about the 
the UN college and we kind of left off in high school. So you graduated from high school. Yes. And you attended university where? I went to the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana. Um, I went there to study architecture. And if I had to do it all over again, I probably would not choose architecture. Um, I ended up in architecture because we take those personality tests that says, all right, what are you most suited for? And then my college counselor, my high school counselor, who was helping me select the colleges that he thought would be best for me, um, said, well, of all the things that you seem to be interested in, architecture is the most difficult school to get into. We'll try to get you into that. And then if for some reason you want to transfer, you can transfer. Because I'm guessing most of the people that he was counseling, transferring schools was not a big deal when you were in college because paying for it probably wasn't a big deal to most of the kids he faced. Oh, okay. I was like wondering what the connection and why that was such bad advice though. Uh, Well, I mean, it was bad advice in that I was not in the financial situation where by the time I realized that architecture probably wasn't the path that I wanted to go on, that I could go back and redo the things that I would have needed needed to redo. The architecture program is so architecture focused that I would have had to right total redo. Yeah, I would have had to redo a lot and no, but I actually think it was really bad advice for him to be like, oh yeah, just pick this major because it's hard, and if it doesn't work out, just transfer. That's in, just terrible. In retrospect, <laughs> Father Sullivan was an elderly gentleman who probably didn't have his finger on the pulse of what was going on for somebody who was 17 and moving on to the next step of life. So you moved from basically living in the city, Chicago. Well, suburbs. Yeah, but Chicago suburbs to Champaign-Urbana, which is not a budding metropolis, right? No, but on the college campus, it was probably a much more diverse um, group of individuals that I came into contact with than I did in Wheeling. Okay. So from the Wheeling to Urbana, Champaign-Urbana, pretty blossoming comparatively. Yeah, I mean, and my time spent at Urbana was so hyper-focused on university life that I really didn't have much involvement with the community at large. Right. So the, the townies I came into infrequent contact with um, – it wasn't something that was in the forefront of my mind. I was much more focused on the school aspect. That's not to say the academic aspect. Right. Just the life of being at college. The life of being at college with a bunch of other kids who were probably most likely from the suburbs of Chicago. Um, yeah, and being out on our own. So did you stay there in the summers or did you go home? I went home my freshman year and... Maybe my sophomore year, I think. So you did I, eventually start staying. Here. I did eventually start staying because I learned that if I went home, I had to stay under my parents' rules. And by the time that I was a junior, that was no longer palatable. Did you do summer classes at all? I did summer classes my after my freshman year because I did not do so well in calculus. Um, we Very were speaking of, before the podcast. We were speaking of weed out classes in architecture. Um, calculus is one of those classes and I found that when I took it at the local community college, it was much easier. (laughs) 
So you didn't actually take it at Champaign-Urbana. You took it. Oh, I took it at Champaign-Urbana. I just didn't pass. Oh. So then you took it someplace else. <laughs> so I took I took it at Harper College up Where's in Palatine. Harper? Oh, okay. So that was okay. So that was early. That was local. Okay. So yeah, I I had to retake. So I I think I took it took math one twenty calculus at Harper, and then I retook math one thirty two, which would have been calc two, at Champaign-Urbana over summer school. I think. I loved summer school. I wish I would have discovered it like right after my freshman year. I, I did summer school my junior and senior year, and I, I took a studio over summer, and it was a blast. I mean, there were 10 of us in the class, and, you know. So I'm not familiar with... A five-hour studio, three I'm times... I'm familiar a, with studio. What, what so studios... Oh, went, architecture studio. Yeah, architecture okay. studio, where we go, and we're doing our drafting and our designing. So a five-hour class would have a three-hour studio three times a week. And in a summer session, I think it was a four-hour studio four times a week. And so it was pretty intensive, lots of model building and design and drafting. But, you know. It was probably more like working, like a, having a job job, right? Um, well, that's the, that's the part of architecture that if somebody would have told me what the reality of architecture was, the lifestyle of being an architect, um, before I went to college, I wouldn't have chose that lifestyle. The lifestyle of an architect is... Um, a feed off of your young type of lifestyle. It they are in my experience. I shouldn't label all architects. That wouldn't be fair. Hashtag not all architects. Yes, but in my experience, um, they architects tend to be much more concerned about the finished product than they are about running a business, and that often their love for the art, um, kind of hinders their ability to live a sane life or make a profit. Any architects that are listening, you can hit up Chris Lowe at... Uh, CLowman at Yahoo.com. Just wanted to get that in there. Don't send your hate mail to me. Send it to Chris. <laughs> That's just my experience. I've done the work. And, you know, when you're out at a job site and... You know, the contractors work shorter hours and make twice as much as you. Well, then maybe you think you may have done made the wrong choice. <laughs> All right. So let's um, let's stay in college. Uh, any defining moments from the collegiate experience? I met my wife there. You did. I did. She picked me up in a bar one night. I have heard this story. <laughs> and I'm not going to retell it here. No, that's totally fine. So um, maybe that leads us into, so tell us a little bit about your wife. Um, How does that all tie into the rest of your story? She is and always has been an overachiever. Um, she is a very competitive person who played competitive basketball and soccer in high school, played competitive soccer in college. Um, she is a workaholic. She does awesome in her job. I think her company has thousands of employees and she's the top ranked female employee. Nice. Um, so I am very proud of her and she is amazing. And then you guys have some kids? We have two kids. I have a sixth grader and a seventh grader. My sixth grader is a girl and she loves acting and is into all kinds of different activities. 
Um, and then I've got a son who's in seventh grade who is also in just about every activity that is possible. So when it comes to parenting, are you using knowledge that you've acquired from being a child and being parented, or are you kind of making it up as you go? I pull from wherever I can to help me parent. Um, your listeners may or may not know I'm a stay-at-home dad, recovering architect, so I consider parenting to be my full-time job. Um, I take it very seriously, and I judge myself based on the quality of kids that I'm raising. And, How long have you been doing the stay-at-home dad thing? Um, I When my kids were born, I had a small consulting business with the agreement with my wife that I would stop doing that when the kids became unmanageable. So, with, so stepping back, in 2002, we moved here from Denver. We moved, well, we moved to Batavia from oh, yeah, Denver. Oh, yeah, you talked about locations yet. Yeah, we are not at home. We are currently in downtown Chicago. Yeah. Um, and when we moved back here, we moved back here for my wife's job. They transferred her back here and the agreement for me moving back here is that we were going to start trying to have a family and that when we had that family I would be the stay-at-home parent so pre-agreed that was the way it was going to be Jill was going to stay working Chris was going to be at home with kids I was a latchkey kid growing up and so my parents worked a lot and very often I was home alone or I didn't have somebody there to answer the questions when I needed you know cookies being baked when you got home or somebody to pick you up from school, you know, all that stuff. And I understand that my parents did the best that, I, that they could. And I don't blame them at all. Um, if anything, you blame the culture. Uh, but I, well, that was, that was growing up in the seventies. I mean, that was, that was worked big time. That was when we started making transition as a culture from one family, one income families to two income families. And, I, my wife and I, were fortunate enough that we can survive off of her income. So that was something that we both wanted was to be able to have. She had her mom at home when she was a kid and very much appreciated that. And I wish I would have been able to spend more time with my parents at home. They're both still alive, so I do get to spend time with my parents. But um, I wish I would have been able to spend more time with them then as opposed to now. Um, I'm very confident that both of my parents have been to more of my children's sporting events than they ever went to mine. The grandparenting thing, I'm kind of really excited to get to that because I want to feel like what that is, because apparently it's, it must be amazing because my parents are very different people now than I feel like they were when I was a kid. So I'm kind of excited to take that next evolution to... I'm not that excited. Well... Yeah. You're a little bit, your kids are younger than mine. That's true. You're not that much younger than me, but your kids are younger than mine. <laughs> so I haven't told the story as to why we waited so long to have kids. Because we got married in 1996. So I've been, so we are going to be celebrating our 22nd anniversary in May. Yeah, and we just celebrated ours. So very interesting. All right. So let's, let's hear So it. right after, so we got married in 1996, which would have been two years after I got out of college. And we got married in May. And we were getting ready to move into our first house in August. And I believe 
one or two weeks before we moved into that house, my wife found out she had cancer. She had Hodgkin's lymphoma. And we found out that she had cancer and that she had to go through chemotherapy. And she was how old? 24? So, so this would have been 96, 97. So... Oh, a little bit older. Okay. She would have been 26? Yeah. 25, 26? And I actually think that that had a bigger life-changing impact on me than it did on her. Um, and... Amazingly, she worked through the entire thing. I was gonna say she probably didn't skip a beat. She she did not skip much of a beat at all. I mean, I mean she's competitive. She, you know, can't show weakness and went through it amazingly. Um, but that gave me a new perspective on life. And since that time, I've been much more focused on the process and the enjoyment of life than the up until that point. Well, in even well after that, we were very much dinks, dual income, no kids. And, you know, just working insane hours, making, you know, probably more money than we deserved and, you know, spending it frivolously doing trips to wherever. Um, But that isn't necessarily only make you happy. Right. And, you know, there's more to life than working till from seven o'clock in the morning till nine o'clock at night, five days a week so that you can party on the weekends. And I think we've now discovered that by having somebody home, it can make the other person's life so much better, you know? So, okay. So I know that you are the since you were stay-at-home, you're also the primary cook. Oh, yeah. So was the cooking thing something that you grew into, or was that something that you always had so an affinity for? I grew up in restaurants, and my dad was always a restaurant manager. My uncle lived with us, and he was a chef. My mom was a server waitress for a lot of my childhood, so... I spent a lot of time in restaurants, but my dad didn't like cooking at home, and my mom really couldn't cook. So right around late middle school, early high school, I discovered that if I wanted to eat good food, I had to cook it myself. Wow, so you started back then. So I started cooking for myself. I started baking first, making cookies and brownies and things of that sort. Which is kind of your wheelhouse to this day, right? um, That is probably what I'm most known for. (laughs) I would not say that it is what my best food is. Oh, what's your best food? I don't know that I necessarily have a best food, but I think I make a lot of good food. And I think I'm, I think I'm, that's where my creative outlet is. So it used to be architecture where I could actually get some creativity and now it's in the kitchen. So I love, I love being able to go and see, all right, what's in the pantry and what kind of meal can I make from this? And just kind of making something up. And a lot of times people ask me for the recipe, and I'm like, I have no idea what I put in that. So did you start from recipe at some point, or did you just actually just paint on canvas with food? Um, Not literally. I, I started paint by number, so yeah, I started okay, using... Okay, you start with recipes. I started with lots of recipes, and if I'm making something new, I will start with the recipe. But sometimes... 
if it's a style of cooking that I'm comfortable with, I will modify the recipe even from the get-go. All right, so what are some of those styles that you're super comfortable with? A lot of Italian dishes, pasta dishes, I feel really comfortable modifying. Um, fish dishes, you know, grilling, soups. I mean, I can modify most dishes. If I were to make a quiche, I'd probably go straight from the recipe the first couple times. A souffle. You know, damn souffle. I mean, they're, that's they're, not that's not my I mean, league. I mean, well, a souffle, I would go by the I'd go by the recipe because okay. there are too many things that could go wrong. Right, with it. exactly. Um, but for things that are more forgiving, like a bread, a soup, those types of things, I feel relatively comfortable. What's your go-to meat of choice in your cooking? For my own pleasure, or yeah, for display. For I mean. No, no, for taste. When we're talking about food, I don't care how. My it looks. my, my preference is probably going to be seafood, and okay. I, I would go and see what's fresh and make something using you know fresh local ingredients and whatever the freshest fish or seafood. Do you go is. to that place in Saint Charles, down by Boy Scout Island? Yeah, is that the one by Boy Scout Island? Uh, yes. Yeah. Right in the same parking lot of Dick Ponds. Yeah, dig that place. Yeah, I, I, I will go there. Sorry, we're getting hyper-local all of a sudden. But yeah, I, I go there for <laughs> special occasions, but most of my most of my meat and seafood I will pick up elsewhere. But yeah, that's a good... They have, I think they have the best fish around. Yeah, they by far. But they also are not the cheapest around. No, not at all. <laughs> but it's so good. Um, we got into uh, hand-making our own uh, maki or sushi rolls. Two summers ago, and that's our go-to place for. I've done I've done that once. I need to do that more often. It's pretty fun, and I think you dig the Zen part of it. And I have a rice cooker that yep. makes perfect rice. And all right, back to meat though. So seafood number one. What's your like red meat go-to? Like you just straight uh, beef guy, or you mix in some bison or lamb? Or... Oh, I I love me a good bison or ostrich burger. I am a fan. I don't necessarily cook it very much. I don't think we can source ostrich meat near us, can we? Um, Country House has ostrich burgers. Oh no, but that's where you can go and buy yeah. a burger. But I'm talking about if you're like cooking yeah, at if, home. if if I'm prepping at home, I tend to stick with the major, you know, your your beef, your steak. Um, my family is not a big fan of red meat, so I actually don't make a lot of steak. Oh, um, that's too bad. We tend, yeah, we tend to do a lot of chicken, unfortunately, right. and a lot of ground beef, pork tenderloin, you know, things of that sort. But I, I don't get that outrageous with the meat selection. What's your favorite dish to make? Um, I don't know that I, I, it's too hard to nail down just because it depends on my mood. Um, some, some days I might, you know, I might want a, a good comfort food. So I might want to make slow cooker chili or biscuits and gravy or chicken and dumplings, or I might be in the health mood. So I might make a raw tuna salad with avocados and mm. corn, you know what I mean? It, in something crunchy in there, I'm jicama. You know, something like that. It just depends on what my mood mood is at the time. Yeah, I might want lasagna. I might want 
a big casserole. I might want something that just looks awesome. I make a uh, a pastry ring that is got like a cranberry turkey salad in it. Oh. That looks amazing and gets tons of compliments, and it's super easy to make. So it just depends. So do you plan out like do, like on a Sunday? Do you plan out meals for the week, or do you take it day by day since you're home? I I typically take it day by day because our schedule is so erratic. Um, for those that don't know, my son runs cross country, plays soccer, plays basketball, plays baseball, plays golf, plays the trombone. My daughter plays basketball, plays soccer, plays the baritone, acts. Is she still, is she doing gymnastics still or no? No, she doesn't do gymnastics anymore, although she wants to take a tumbling class now. There is one at Excel, I think. Um, so I'll have to look into that. Uh, she also got the acting bug. So she's currently started the second semester drama class. Nice. Um, but so we are super, super busy, especially this time of year. Um, I usually play it by ear. Sometimes I can make a quick dinner and everybody comes and grabs a bowl of whatever I, I threw in the crock pot. Sometimes we have leftover. It. I can't plan the week just because our schedule is too erratic. I used to do it, and what I found is that I've made four meals, and we've got four meals worth of leftovers. So, right. no, I'm at the jewel like pretty much five to six days a week. I I love shopping by the meal. It yeah. it saves us so much money. I think it's very European. <laughs> I I I wish that our society would go to a more local economy where we are encouraged to, you know, run to the butcher and pick up meat for tonight and go over to the vegetable stand and pick up your vegetables for tonight so that, you know, I've discovered that we throw out a lot of food and it makes me sad and it makes me depressed. But it's, you know, comes from the mentality that you go and you pick up two weeks worth of groceries. Right. And I don't know where that came from. I don't know why it's stuck in our head. And I know that that's the way we always did things, probably because our lives are so busy that we didn't have time. But now I have the ability to go and spend a half hour going grocery shopping three or four times a week. And your refrigerator looks fabulous when you do it that way. There's always room. And you can actually have vegetables in it. And, yes. You, know, you don't have to worry about the bag of spinach that's all wilted and soggy in the back. So what's the uh, what's the favorite meal of the kids like when they like dad cook us? My my son would probably say my sandwiches. I love being creative with my sandwiches, um, so I will take whatever we have on hand. I will saute vegetables and I will melt cheese, and I will put. I probably have seven or eight different types of mustard in my fridge. God, we just ate a shit tons of food, and you're making me so hungry right now. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I, and I, 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 sometimes I grill, I'll make them a sandwich on French loaf with garlic butter toasted and four different types of meat and, you know, and other times I'll make it and I'll run it through the garden where it's got sauteed spinach and mushrooms and onions. I mean, so my son will probably say sandwiches. I've even done, gone as far where I'll make him like a Monte Cristo style where, Dip it in batter and fry it up. Damn. Um, my daughter, she's gonna say mac and cheese, hot dogs, chicken. I hate cooking for her. So, 
son more adventurous eater than daughter? Absolutely. And, and I, I blame my pediatrician for that one. Why? My daughter used to be a biter. And to stop her of biting, our pediatrician recommended that we use cayenne pepper. <gasps> really? And now she will not eat anything that is even remotely spicy. Like you put cayenne pepper on everything? Or when she would bite, you'd when put cayenne bite, pepper? When she bite, you put cayenne pepper on her tongue. And wow. would you consider that fairly old school or <laughs> I think so. And I think in retrospect, if I made any mistakes as a parent, which I haven't at all, <laughs> not a single one. I mean, I, I mean, if I made any mistakes, which I'm, I'm really serious, I made none. Um, <laughs> I, would I think say, I made them all for you. Though. Oh, great. Um, I would say that that is probably one of my bigger regrets because I think she would really she really gets into cooking. And she's the one that wants to spend time in the kitchen with me, figuring out how things are working and going. But her palate is just not very adventurous. God, she can't eat anything I make because I've got my family trained that cayenne pepper's nothing. Like oh. I put it in everything I cook. I have a fiery fish taco recipe that the, the original recipe called for four tablespoons of cayenne. That's too much. That is a lot. So I've gotten it down to about a tablespoon, tablespoon and a half. Which is still plenty. That is a lot, and they're awesome. <laughs> I'm gonna have to get that one. So I will. I will send you my fiery fish taco recipe. So we went quickly from college to marriage to kids to cooking. I don't know how you got back on food because we just ate. I know, but it sounded so good. Um, so what did we miss? What did we miss? Because I know you've been pining over this, and you had this list of things that you wanted to talk about. So what, um, what didn't we hit? Because we got time. The, the meaning of life. Oh, shoes going deep. Well, I, I, I think you know some, something that I've noticed about your podcasts and the people that you attract tends to be people who are doing what they want to do. And they're people who are trying to make the world better while also making it enjoyable for themselves. And you're totally doing that for the record. And 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 and, and I think that I fall very squarely in that category. And I, you know, something that I occasionally hear, because obviously being a stay-at-home dad is less common than being a stay-at-home mom. And... I hear people who, you know, nice gig that you have and must be nice and that sort of thing. But I got here based on my choices. Right. And you know they're saying that out of jealousy, by the way, right? Well, I mean, but they say it out of jealousy in a way that, like, that door wasn't open to them. Right. And they're also saying it, like, you know, I would say you should take that with a grain of salt because I'm sure they're saying it in a very snarky way. But it's because they felt like that door, they felt like that door wasn't open for them. It's always open. You and I talked about this earlier right. today. It's about choices. Right. I mean, and, and, you know, people choose whether or not they want to, you know, in today's climate, people choose whether or not to be happy. And I think too many people choose not to be happy. And that's really bringing me down. Um, it... It seems like we could be a much happier and a much more advanced society if our goal was 
happiness rather than an achievement of something that isn't even really achievable. Like, hey, I want to be rich. Well, what does that mean? You know, at what dollar value are you going to be happy with rich? Is it a certain amount of income? Is it a certain amount of wealth? And are you, once you get there, are you sure you're going to be happy? Um, no, chances are you're just going to want more. Right. I mean, th- there is no end to the rat race um, unless you decide that there is. And if we decide to change our goals, I one of the reasons that I actually like being a stay-at-home dad is... I could go out there and I could get a job and I could hire a nanny to watch my kids, but I don't see what I would gain out of it. I don't see what benefit I would be giving to society. I don't see what benefit I'd be giving to my family that I don't already have. Um, I also am very well aware of, I am very lucky and very privileged to have that opportunity and that not everybody has that option. Um, and certainly doesn't have the option to do it at the level of luxury that I am fortunate enough to enjoy. Um, But that said, I think we still can do more to be happier as individuals. So do you think, did you have like an aha moment or something that made you decide that that was going to be like, I'm going to make this choice because I know that it's going to make everything better? Or is it just something that organically happened? Well, at the same time that my wife was going through cancer, I had a influential boss, Mike Paddock, who told me you can't make any mistakes before you're 30. And... Meaning you have the whole rest of your life to... Well, meaning meaning that, meaning that if you, know, you decide to move somewhere, or if you decide to, you know take on a job that you wouldn't have expected otherwise that, you know, there's a time that you can make mistakes and it's when you're young. And I took advantage of that when I was young and, you know, I took new jobs. The reason we moved to Denver is I was offered the opportunity to work for an architecture firm that specialized in golf course clubhouses. And I'm an avid golfer. I love golfing. And it was a huge leap. It was a huge risk to pick up everything and move across the country. I, my entire family lived, you know, the family that I grew up with. So my mom has a sister and a brother who lived in the area with their families and we were close knit. I was the first one to move out of the area. And so it was very much breaking out of the shell and moving and I, I think it was the mindset that was kind of set in the place between my wife having cancer and going, you know, we don't know how much time we have. Right. And, you know, a boss who was kind of going, you know what, grab life and do what you want with it. And those two things kind of converged at the right moment that just kind of shifted my way of thinking to, all right, on top of how much money is this going to make me and is this going to give me the next promotion to, am I happy? Is this, is this something that I'm going to enjoy? Um, so now I spend more of my time reading, less of my time watching TV and, you know, doing things that I believe make my life more enjoyable. 
And a lot of that, I find, for me personally, is making other people's lives more enjoyable. I like it when the people around me are happy. And it sounds like you're doing a, yes, amazing job, but also an admirable job of, like, making that change at home, which is the only way change is ever going to happen on a large scale. Like, yes, you and I do this civic thing, but I think more importantly we focus on what's happening inside the four walls of our home and we're sending out into the world kids that understand what being well-read is about, uh, kids that understand what having compassion is about, kids who understand, you know, like everyone starts with a clean slate and everyone starts at the same place, you know, so we're, we're like starting and I'm putting some words in your mouth, so you can either say yes or correct me. Or I was going to say, I'm not sure that I agree that everybody starts with a clean slate and everybody starts at the same place. Well, but I think our kids are going out in the world and not, hopefully we're raising kids that aren't having any preconceives. And when they meet someone, it's from ground zero. It's not with an expectation. All right. So this is the kickoff of an interesting discussion now. Um, is it a good thing to have that balanced viewpoint on life? I mean... Sometimes I think it's actually good to recognize, you know what, they didn't start off with the same opportunities. Right, but I don't know that about anybody when I first meet them. Like, I don't want to presuppose that anybody had any kind of start. Fair enough, yeah. Fair so, and, those are the, and I think those are the, the things that we're instilling in our kids, okay. what I'm saying. Is that if I walk up to somebody on the street, they are, at that exact moment in time, we are complete equals... And we we we're we're both at that same exact point, and I, then from the conversation from that point, then you learn, you adapt, you discover, you know. But at, you're not like my. Hopefully, my kids aren't walking out in the world and saying, you know, oh, I am up at this lofty area here, and those of you out there are below. You know, I don't I don't want them. I want everyone to have a a good. Not that everyone has the same starting point in life, but in a conversation, in a relationship, everyone starts from the same place. And and I can I can yes I can agree with that. And where I get concerned with that conversation, and the reason that I kind of perked up there is one of the things that, especially um, the more liberal aspects of our society, which I tend to lean towards, um, is complete acceptance and that everybody has an equal voice and that everybody has a point when the reality is is not every opinion is equal and some of them are just downright wrong right and i think that's an ideal more so than reality and but i because of the reality i'm not sure that it always it is even an admirable ideal for that reason because it leads it, i think it can lead to misconception or it can lead us to a bad place i'm i'm not exactly sure how to phrase it but um i think the whole idea of us wanting a colorblind society for example has been very detrimental i think it's going caused a lot more harm for race relations than it has helped. And 
I don't know if that needs further explanation. Um, no, it makes but complete... it's very interesting that you bring that up because so when you and I met each other and, you know, knowing each other tangentially, I don't even count. But from the very first time that I met you in person and we engaged in more than just regular banter because that's just the people that we are. So um, I instantly did not even like I didn't see you at all. And uh, this is full disclosure. And this is probably something Chris and I have never actually spoken about. But you had started like dropping these, you know, like. I need to make sure I'm parking the right way on the bridge and I wish there was a tunnel under the river. And my initial reaction was like, it's like, why is he talking like this? And then I was like, oh shit, he's black. And I like, it didn't like for months did not even register with me. And the so, funny thing is, is that is what's going through my mind when we were walking to dinner and we were jaywalking and the red flags start going off in my head going, is it safe for me to jaywalk? Because that is just the mentality that I'm raised with. Right. Because you don't know what is going to happen if right. somebody sees you jaywalking and they are just looking to cause a problem. Um, so it, it's very interesting when I'm out with friends and things that I know that they take for granted, I know concern me. You know, I have a buddy who... Loves rolling stop signs. I don't do it because it just... Who loves rolling stop signs? What is... That that happens a <laughs> lot in our town. Have you not noticed Well, no, that? I know it happens, but you said he loves oh, rolling. Okay. okay, he habitually. He just does it. Okay. He does it a lot. He doesn't get a rise out of it. He well, he might. Does it. <laughs> I, I don't know that for sure one way or the other, but he, he does it. And it's it just interesting the different, you know, um, you know, the different things in the way that people approach life that I just don't even consider because of who I am. But it is interesting that you um, point out that I, that you, you notice that you notice that after the fact, because I've been called Italian. I mean, it depends on how my facial hair is, how my head is shaved. People have thought I'm Mexican, Italian, Asian. It is amazing that often people don't realize that I'm in the room and that I am who I am. See, I just honestly think it's because we engage right away. And it, I mean, and, and I do believe, and I know you say it's not necessarily a positive thing, but I do believe when you engage with people as people that their physical appearance, I mean, you can say, like, apply it to um, physical attraction. Same thing. So physical attraction can be highly influenced by intellectual attraction. So once you get to know somebody and you have, um, you know, a, a, an emotional investment in that person, everything about them changes from an appearance standpoint. And I do believe that when deep, meaningful connections are made, that physical appearance becomes almost transparent. Um, and actually, that is something that I bank on when I approach life and I put myself out in the public is I know there's a lot of people who have negative images of minorities. But I also know that if they engage with me in a conversation, chances are after the conversation, they're going to have a better view on minorities. 
or not realize. <laughs> or not real. Well, that. Well, right there's. I mean, and, and 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 often that tends to get into that weird area where people are like, "Why oh, didn't know you were black?" At which point, that obviously, that's a very uncomfortable situation because you should be speaking the same way whether I was black or not. Right. And for me, that discovery wasn't so much the, like, I would change my behavior, but, or, well, no, not so much that I would change the things I would say. I wouldn't change that at all. But referencing back to the jaywalking thing and referencing back to privilege and people not understanding, like, when I did make that realization, I kind of checked myself and was like, oh, shit, you know, am I, like, you know, putting both of us in this position of my, you know, unacknowledged privilege that's really not fair and this gets into a whole like dicey downward spiral of conversation but that was the big aha moment for me and you know when you referenced when i realized when you were referencing parking the right way and stuff i'm like god you know we're going out and drinking and i'm gonna walk home and i'm not even you know thinking about never mind the whole dangers of you know drinking and driving but the dangers of drinking and driving or driving period as a minority in any town. It's just like, and I didn't, that and was for the record, for me. I've never, ever, never, had, ever never. had an incident in Batavia. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to say never, ever drank and drove. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah. I've never done that either. Um, <laughs> or driven, drived, pleaded. I was going to say pleaded, pleaded pled, pled. <laughs> lighted, lit. Anyways, that's a previous conversation for people who are unaware um, we have to have some inside jokes. Of course. So what, what was the next question? I, I, I'm actually pretty tapped out on questions. And we are actually uh, an hour and 18 minutes in. That's probably enough. Yeah, I think that's probably about, I mean, this is my longest one, just by a few minutes. But this is a good one. And uh, first time live, so this is weird. It is a little weird, but. I don't know how to say it. I'd be curious to see how people respond to this. Uh, this is one that I would really love people to like send us a note. You guys all know how to get a hold of me on Twitter. Um, that's something that we can talk about Chris again because he's a Facebook kind of Twitter guy. Um, but uh, so to finish out, what I usually say is I reserve the right to recall you as a guest. Fair enough. Because there's lots of stuff we didn't cover that we can still cover. And then I like to ask one last question. Uh, and you've listened to a couple of podcasts. I already know what your question is going to be. So who who's somebody that you think would be good on the podcast? I think that the best choice would be our fellow board member, Mr. Dryden. John. Yeah, see, he's on my list. I just wonder how that will play out because he's pretty um, he's relatively private in an odd way. He did, I, I, he did think, one podcast during the big controversy. Don't want to give too much away for the episode, but yeah, I, he's definitely – yeah, I think that's a that's a must-do. All right, so I also give my guests a uh, last closing remarks if you want to say anything, or you can just say thanks and see you. No, thanks. It's been a lot of fun. It went a lot faster than I thought it would, and I'm curious as to how this went, and I hope people enjoy it. Well, thanks for coming. Well, thanks for being here. We're actually at a conference for our civic duty thing, so... Uh, this was a great little distraction after dinner tonight. So thanks for tuning in. Uh, check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. I'm on all the networks. Uh, just search for My Friends Are Amazing and uh, give a subscribe. Really appreciate it. So that was a great conversation I had with Chris. Uh, we were actually attending a, a 
conference for school board members the night that we uh, recorded that. So it was uh, great to be together in the same room and do the recording. Uh, obviously going to have Chris back at a later date because there was tons of stuff that we haven't covered uh, about his public service and all kinds of good stuff. So uh, big thanks to Chris for being on the show. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed it. Just want to tease uh, next week's episode. So the name of the podcast is My Friends Are Amazing. Uh, it's going to be an uh, interesting topic because I actually want to have my 16-year-old daughter Lillian on the show next week. And some people are probably saying, well, Bob, you're not supposed to be friends with your kids. But um, you know, at the beginning, when she was a baby, obviously, you know, very different father-daughter relationship, raising her, giving her the, uh, the tools she needs to succeed in life, and just kind of being that loving dad. But you know what? As you raise these kids, you get to know them, and you give them this tool set, and then they make choices. And you sometimes, you know, really enjoy the choices that they make, and sometimes you don't enjoy those choices. But there's a very strong likelihood that when you do enjoy the choices that they're making, and the young adults that they're becoming... You engage in conversations and you actually do become friends. So I'm actually very proud to say that uh, all of my kids are friends of mine. And so they probably all will be on the podcast sooner or later, but I'm uh, going to kick the family aspect off of it with my daughter, Lillian, and uh, we will learn more about her when I read her bio for next week's episode. But I hope you uh, give us a subscribe and tune in. And uh, so next Thursday, we'll have another episode. And I just want to mention our sponsors one last time before I sign off. Uh, big shout out and thanks to socialimposter.com, Reputation Management, and uh, our new sponsor this week, The Bob and Kevin Show. Check them out on YouTube, 8 a.m.s Eastern Standard Time Live, or you can always catch them on demand at Kevin Kevin's YouTube channel and check the link at the baitybar.com website with this episode. And uh, thanks. Talk to you next week.